Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. Over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio, you are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter, and we are so blessed to be together. Join us to go more deeply into this great adventure at ilovemyfamily.us. In just a moment, we are going to get to our final Belief and Beverages Night presentation with Professor Kevin Slack from Hillsdale College. And you want to listen because I would describe this truly as an earth shaking talk, an earth-shaking talk. What makes it an earth-shaking talk? Well, if we believe that family and marriage are the cornerstone of civilization, it's important to understand what are the forces that have conspired throughout history, but in particular the last 150 years, to bring us to a place where we disregard the nature of man, the nature of woman, and the nature of marriage. Dr. Slack takes us on a deep dive with very well-researched insight into that situation and with some phenomenal conversation in the questions that follow. So stay tuned. Here is a short commercial, and then we'll get on with our program. We invite you to go to massimpact.us forward slash kingdom to see a list of incredible Catholic business owners who have the highest standards of professional excellence and building the kingdom. That is their commitment. So we want to go through these. We encourage you to support them as they support us. All-in-one payroll, Sherry Glenneman. Archbald Furniture Company, Pat and Patty McNamara. Becoming Gift, Andrew Reinhardt. Carruth Studio, Terry Langenderfer. Cronin Auto Family, Rich and Connie Cronin. Danbury Realtors, Tina Weisenberger. Endlish Environmental and Energy, Tammy Endlish. Imago Day Video Productions, Greg Schleter. Interstate Commercial Glass, Walter Erickson. Isabel Financial Services, Dennis Isabel. MFC Products, Miller Fastener and Components, Paul Miller. Resourcement, Jeffrey Barefoot. SJS Investment Services, Kevin Kelly. Turning Point Chiropractic, Doctors Jeff and Rachel Elmore. And last but not least, Walker Family Funeral Homes and Crematory, our beloved Ryan Hobbs representing them. So folks, again, Building the Kingdom does have something to do with whom we support for products and services. We do encourage you to go to massimpact.us forward slash kingdom and support them while you're also supporting our mission. Dr. Kevin Slack has been married for 12 years and is the father of five children. He is the Associate Professor of Politics at Hillsdale College. He received his BA in History from Indiana University and MA in Political Science from the University of California at Davis. He received an MA and PhD in Politics from the University of Dallas. Dr. Slack's peer-reviewed work has appeared in journals such as American Political Thought, The New England Quarterly, and Church History. He published his first book, Benjamin Franklin, Natural Right and the Art of Virtue, with the University of Rochester Press in 2017. His second book, entitled War on the American Republic, How Liberalism Became Despotism, is forthcoming from Encounter Press. I've been blessed to take three classes with Dr. Slack thus far, neoliberalism and identity politics, sexual revolution, and currently post-60s and new progressivism. Uh, Thankfully, he hasn't failed me in any of them. So it is a great honor to introduce to you Dr. Kevin Slack. Thanks, JP. Thank you for those remarks about the uh, uh, the recent midterms. I'm reminded of uh, the founder's warning at the Constitutional Convention, uh, and that is uh, republics 
often fail when an oligarchy rises and then they begin to basically harvest the ballots of dependent voters. Uh, and that's one of the warnings we should heed today. So the basic theme of this talk is what happened to marriage. Uh, and there's really two theories that I often hear among Catholic intellectuals. One of them is, is that there's an individualism that goes back to the American founding uh, and that we blame the notion of marriage as a contract that somehow devalues the sacred vow that's taken in a church. And so we strip the institution of any sacred obligations. Uh, and then the second, what happened in marriage, why did it fall apart, and we'll get into some, some of the numbers tonight, is that there's a kind of democratic movement. Uh, people read Alexei de Tocqueville, uh, and they understand that there's these throbbing democratic masses that are vulgar, who want sexual revolution, uh, and that they're going to uh, destroy the regime unless there are a few aristocrats who stand in the breach and save it. So these are two different theories about what happened in marriage, and what I'd like to do is to talk about uh, the founders' understanding of marriage as a contract, uh, why it was a wonderful understanding, and then what happened to it in American history uh, and where that leaves us today. Uh, I guess one of the first points to make uh, is that our politics is always informed by something religious, right? Aristotle recognizes the role of the priests who uh, are going to oversee the sacrifices in his politics. And so uh, what he's referring to and the way we would apply it today is, is that our positive law always appeals to some kind of ethical principle. You could look and say the Declaration of Independence, the appeal to the law of God and nature's God, something outside of the positive laws that directs the people. Uh, and when we look at marriage, the natural law understanding was included in the positive laws. John Witherspoon in 1788 uh, would talk about how the natural law has guided our understanding of the positive law. Who could get married? Uh, what were the changes, actually, how we deviated from uh, the, the uh, British Empire's understanding of the institution? Things like, under natural law, those who uh, agreed to the marital contract had to be free, single, there must be mutual consent, you must be sane, you must be old enough, and not incestuous. And of course, these are natural law teachings that go back hundreds and hundreds of years uh, in Europe. Uh, one of the changes that takes place in the American regime is marriage is voluntary. Uh, and so you have these two equal participants as opposed to an arranged marriage, where you marry off your daughter for the purposes of political connections or economic connections. And this was something very different. And so the Americans, when they understand the word contract, uh, it's something that's very good. It's not something that's low and that's base. It's the notion of a voluntary agreement to take on long-term obligations. Uh, and they rooted those obligations in their notion of the differences between the sexes. And here I should quote from Aristotle. Aristotle defines the barbarian as the man who treats a woman like a slave. In other words, the man who raises a hand to a woman. Someone, a man who beats a woman. And we all recognize this distinction today. Uh, for example, and I, I tell my 101 students, if you find out that there's a woman slapping her husband around, that's the stuff of comedy. But if you find that there's an adult male slapping around little children or his wife, then we're very serious. We feel like there's some justice uh, that's been violated. Uh, and so we have this notion of the barbaric and the civilized and marriage being a key institution that elevates us from the former to the latter. Uh, one more thing, so we have this notion of natural law that guides marriage, uh, and then we have the notion of the social contract. The two go together. The idea of Republican government is inseparable from the description of marriage I just gave you. 
where you have two equal persons in their separate spheres who agree to take on long-term obligations. So social contract, the idea of individuals who form a people and they're the ones who elect representatives who will pass the laws for their government, is more than just a theory that's applied to the formation of government. You find it in the Declaration of Independence or some of the state constitutions and bills of right. Uh, rather, it's connected to the very idea of Republican family. Uh, for example, if we look at John Witherspoon again, he said, marriage is the cornerstone of the social contract. Uh, and what was their understanding of the roles of male and female? Well, first, you have to understand is they recognize a biological difference between male and female. You can read some of the, uh, the writers of the founding period, whether it's Zephaniah Swift or Johann Grass or James Wilson, the famous jurist, and they talk about the difference between the, quote, constitutions of the sexes. So we call that biology. There are biological differences between men and women, and this makes them suitable for certain roles in society. And if you look at 19th century America, the way that this was taught was that males and females have separate spheres. So the difference in biology is played out in what we call gender roles. Men are suited for certain roles. Women are suited for other roles. And then the question of the state is, how do you get men and women together in a way that is uh, conducive to their individual happiness, but also the happiness of the society? And the notion was a contract. So it's a marriage contract. It doesn't mean that the church doesn't play a role. If you look at, say, uh, the Massachusetts state law, there's actually, there are uh, solemnization acts that are passed where there's a, a formal arrangement, a formal agreement that's made in a church that's gonna give the, the civil institution of marriage a kind of gravitas uh, and respect. Uh, so we have this notion of the Republican family. Uh, let me say one more thing about the notion of contract. Long-term obligations. Uh, it's not the case that if you decide that you don't want to pay your credit card bill, you contact the credit card company and you say, by the way, I'm out of this deal. Unilaterally, I reject to pay the bill. That's not how a contract works. Contract means long-term obligation. And in, in, in the original understanding, and this is connected to the roles that males and females play in the family, uh, the husband is obligated to, quote, uh, what that meant was he would support his wife and children. Women are obligated to intimacy or living under the same roof. If we were to have a transactional view of it, it would be something like men get married because they want to have sex. Women also want some economic security. Now, that's not all we relegate marriage to, but this is part of the contract that men agree to, uh, and it's connected to certain roles that they play. But the contract is not just between them. Uh, and it's not in a church just with God, right, this agreement that's made. Uh, it's with society itself. And so that means there is no unilateral divorce. You have to have the permission of the state. And so is it easy to get a divorce in the American Republican era or all the way until really, and I'll get into some detail, the 1960s? No. Uh, you had to prove that there was fault for a divorce, and it was very hard in the 1800s. In some cases, the state legislature had to sign off on your divorce. They would vote on it, uh, and then uh, a judge in certain states uh, would have to decide whether the divorce was to be allowed, whether there would be a separation of bed and board, and so on. So it's very hard to get a divorce, and you had to show fault, and the reason for that was the misbehaving party would have to pay. So we have a contract between individuals for their happiness. We have a contract with society 
divorce is hard to get. Uh, and if you read the American founders, what's amazing, I'm thinking here of an 1816 Nicholson's American Encyclopedia, there's an entry on uh, marriage and the sensual pleasures, and there's a discussion of what would happen uh, if marriage were undermined, and what would undermine marriage. So these are the founders, and they say things like cohabitation, people living together outside of marriage, uh, or uh, if you uh, have promiscuity. These are two things that undermine the long-term obligations that are made within the marital contract. And so they undermine the institution. What will happen if marriage is destroyed? And what's fascinating is we tend to think of, you know, Americans or humans several centuries ago as if they were somehow naive. They were actually far more intelligent than we are in some of these areas. They had a very good knowledge of human history. And so breaking off from Britain and the British Empire, it's not as if they thought you could transcend Republican marriage. Rather, you would simply descend into an imperial understanding of marriage right, with de facto polygamy and so on, or you would descend into barbarism, right, where the man treats a female like a slave. And so uh, it wasn't that you had another option. Republican marriage for them was the highest that you can get, and that could only be degraded into other forms. So again, the marital type, the Republican family, correlates to the regime type, a Republican order. So, uh, and then what would happen, well, it, I have to say this, there's a warning there, uh, and this is in the same encyclopedia entry, and that is if marriage is undermined, it means you will hurt procreation. You look at, say, birth rates in the United States is a good example. Uh, you will harm the affection uh, between uh, men and women and children in a society. And of course, if you know the effect of divorce, you destroy those bonds of affection. Boys don't know their fathers. Uh, they're distant from their mothers who have to work uh, and so on. And so you destroy that keeps those families together in society necessary for a healthy education of the children. And then you cease to prevent the kinds of quarrels that are the subject of love, the most unruly passion to mankind. You can try to control that by channeling that desire into marriage. And if marriage is destroyed, then you're going to have all kinds of the crimes that you might see today, right? I once had a professor who told me, if you want to see who's killing who, just open up the paper, and a good chunk of those are people who claim to love one another. Why? Well, it's because marriage uh, is a way of resolving that uh, uh, the romance, the sexual desire that human beings have, and might lead them in passion to hurt one another. So these are the things that might happen. And there's one more that I just remembered from that entry. It's this, that insofar as you do away with marriage, you destroy the capacity of human beings to elevate their sexual desire for higher pleasures, things like theology and philosophy, and you end up with a very crude society. And so that's the warning given in the early 1800s. So what changes all of this? And I'll be happy to answer any questions uh, after, uh, after the talk. How can we trace, uh, how can we, uh, trace the, uh, the decline of the institution of marriage? It's very strong. Uh, even after the Civil War, uh, and wars notoriously are associated with dislocations of persons, the destruction of marriage, uh, marriage reaches a height of one out of every 22, or I'm sorry, divorce reaches a height of one out of every 22 marriages, and people are talking about a crisis in the institution. Well, what happened? So I'm going to go through uh, two different, we'll say, eras in American history that are responsible for the decline. The first, I'm going to collapse a couple different periods, 
and we'll call that the progressive and the liberal era. And then we'll get to the second, you're all familiar with this, this is the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And the different views that are introduced about marriage and the relationship between the sexes that helps to destroy uh, the institution for most Americans. So first, we look at the progressive era, 1880 to 1920. What change takes place in this period of time and what changes do we see uh, in the understanding of marriage. Well, it's the progressives who decide that marriage needs to be so much more than a contract. A contract is low, it's base, and you hear you have Teddy Roosevelt's middle class, and they're worried about all these immigrants coming into the country. And Teddy Roosevelt's middle class was very uncertain of itself. This was the WASP Anglo hierarchy. They're Protestants, and now you have all these Southeastern Catholics, Italians, Poles, Greeks that are coming into the country and they're flocking into the cities. And so the wasps who are becoming lapsed Catholics and they're following social gospel teachings, they think, how are we gonna control all of these immigrants? And the solution was, well, and actually I'll say, one of the solutions for politics on the whole was to reject Republican government, to come up with a new administrative state where Congress would delegate lawmaking authority to administrative agencies and boards and commissions because by their scientific expertise, they were more fit than the people's elected representatives to make those decisions. And they could be expected to be neutral, uh, as we know today from state boards of health during the COVID crisis. So you have a rejection of Republican government, but also connect that to the change in the understanding of the family. And that is, we are gonna have special courts that are going to guide all of those polls in Chicago towards a sound, uh, a sound relationship in marriage. And so they created the municipal courts and the family courts. Uh, the WASPs, the progressives said it was a crisis. The divorce rate uh, in 1900 was 7%. Uh, and so in order to solve this crisis, they said the new immigrants are not capable of self-government uh, like the Anglos were in the old uh, provincial era. 19th century, and they blamed the founders' understanding of marriage as a contract. They said it was individualistic, and rather what we would do is channel our expertise into the family court system. And so various cities created the domestic relations courts. These were city courts of limited jurisdiction in cities like Buffalo, New York, Boston, and Kansas City. Uh, and so what you would do is have a judge include the expertise of child development specialist and the new sociologist and the psychologist, and they would diagnose what was wrong in a family's in the family, and then the judge would use his power as the judge under maxims of equity. These were equity courts, so you didn't have the normal due process rights, and he would order the husband or the wife to do certain things, and if you didn't do it, then you were in contempt of court. So this is a way that the courts could intervene in family life with the goal of trying to keep people together. And it wasn't just in the family courts, you also have the new idea of probation. From 1890 to 1915, every state enacted laws that criminalized a husband's desertion and non-support of wife and children, often punishable by imprisonment and hard labor. So we have, in this progressive and liberal era, a large state intervention into family life with the goal of trying to keep families together. Uh, this plays out, and I won't go on at length here, it plays out in the new psychology, marital adjustment. So the idea of marital counseling really takes off in the late 1920s, and they're including the new science of psychoanalysis uh, or uh, the new counseling that you find with Carl Rogers and client-centered therapy later on. 
What we find then by the end of the 1960s is what was called the democratic compromise. There's more of a permissivity that enters into American society in the 1920s. And the democratic compromise was the idea that you still had to show fault in order to get a divorce, but it was an inconvenience. Any of you watch the old, uh, the old show Perry Mason? You know what I'm talking about? Well, uh, my mother loved this show, and so I saw a bunch of it in syndication on UHF channels in San Francisco. Uh, and I remember that Perry Mason episodes are almost always the same. Some woman or husband was getting two-timed, would have to go to Perry Mason, who would use Paul Drake, the private investigator, who would snoop and he would find evidence that there was infidelity, and that would be used for fault in order to obtain a divorce. And of course, somebody always gets killed, and then there's this dramatic confession on the stand, which I don't think has ever happened in the history of law, but it made for great television. So that is 1950s, what was called the Democratic Compromise. You still had to show fault in order to get a divorce, but it was an inconvenience. And that meant that couples would cook up reasons to get a divorce because they just weren't happy in the marriage. Uh, and so they would arrange for a photograph to be taken of the two-timing uh, husband with a woman at a hotel room, and that would be used to get out of the marriage, even though the wife was aware of the fabrication of evidence. However, in that democratic compromise, this behaving party still had to pay. Uh, and so this was the general arrangement in the 1950s. What it meant was, was that divorce rates were still comparatively low. They spike during the Second World War. They jump up, as I recall, something like 34%. But then they go back to about 22%. So you have a 20% divorce rate throughout the, 19, uh, the late 50s and into the 60s. And this leads me into the 1960s, the late 60s changes, the attack on the institution of marriage itself. The 60s radicals looked at middle-class America, and they saw something hideous. And they looked at marriage itself, and they began to question the value of marriage and the two different components that I mentioned. Number one, the biological differences between men and women. And number two, the gender roles that men and women had in the family. Uh, if we look at the, uh, if we look at the second, the gender roles, there was a famous book, many of you have read it, by Betty Friedan called The Feminine Mystique. 1963. The argument made by Betty Friedan was that homemakers were not complete persons. Understand what keeps a society together. Men and women each have a hierarchy of honor and shame. We're social creatures. We look for praise and that we uh, don't like to be shamed uh, in our society. And so we conform to certain expectations or roles. For women, there was honor to be a good wife and a good homemaker. Women did work outside the home. Significant numbers, three-fifths in 1971 of the women in the workforce worked outside the home. They were married. However, women were not careerists. And this is where Betty Friedan's book is very good. She says, if you look at women who are careerists, they're always shamed by women's journals. And there's some psychoanalytic diagnosis as to what's wrong with them. Why do these women have to excel at a corporation? Do they have daddy issues? Are they sexually frigid? There were all these assessments as to what's wrong with them. And Betty Friedan, who had been in the labor movement, she was not the cage songbird she describes herself as being, uh, but who had been in the labor movement, she wanted to overturn that. 
And so she says there's a feminine mystique. Why is it that women who have the opportunity to work and they go off to work in the factories in World War II, why are they all coming home and having children after the war? There's something wrong psychologically with them. And that is a double consciousness, that they perceive themselves, they experience reality through the lens of men in society. So how do we destroy the feminine mystique, which is to say, how do we destroy the code of honor and shame that is directing female behavior? Gloria Steinem, for example, said, this is later on, 1970, uh, in, a, in a speech she gives called Living the Revolution, we need to, to destroy the old myths, and one of them is, is that women who stay at home are better mothers, uh, that homemakers are better mothers, and careers, careerists are not good mothers. So we need to change the hierarchy of honor and shame. And this would apply to men, too. So, uh, uh, Betty Friedan called it the male mystique, the idea that men couldn't cry, or the idea that men had to bring home the bacon and ought to go get a job, although women still believe that, right? 95% when polled say, oh, yeah, men, men should actually have a full-time job and bring home the bacon. You are listening to a very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. We encourage you to check our movement out at massimpact.us. And during this season in particular, help us continue and expand this mission of more fully discovering, proclaiming, living, and building the kingdom. Click on that partner tab. God bless you. So that's the first attack, and that is on the code of honor and shame. Uh, and this is not something many would agree with me on. But when I look at feminism, I don't see a battle of uh, women against men. It's rather a battle between women as to what's going to be honored and what's going to be shamed among them, whereas men have their own hierarchy of honor and shame that they follow. And in this, the feminists were very successful. Uh, when I taught at a community college and there would be older students and I would ask one of these women, Is that, you know, what do you do? They, if they were a homeworker, they would say, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. It's almost like, uh, I should have been left behind in the third grade. Uh, I don't do anything real for a living. So demoting the older understanding that the most important role for a woman, the crucial role, was the health and morals of children in the family. Number two, biology. Here we have a more radical version of feminism. And here I'll quote from Shulamith Firestone, one of the famous feminists. She writes a book called The Dialectic of Sex in 1970. She said, the real problem is the biological difference between men and women. It's not just a social problem. It's not that expectations are different for women in capitalist society. She said it goes all the way back to procreation, a biological difference between men and women that has given women certain roles in society. It's not the role itself, it's the underlying biology. And so she traces out a long dialectic. She critiques Marx. Why? Because Marx and the socialist, the communist, had argued that uh, the real important factor was economic. She said, no, it's sexual, it's reproductive, it's biological. And at the end of this dialectic, and for Marx it meant we would achieve the communist consciousness, at the end of this dialectic for Shulamith Firestone, women would then take control of their own biology through technology. Technology would enable us to transcend biological differences. Uh, here are some of the uh, statements that she makes. The goal is eliminating male privilege and then the sex distinction itself. Here's a quote. Genital differences no longer matter culturally 
in the ideal society. There would be, quote, polymorphous perversity. Here she's quoting Herbert Marcuse. And that would supersede the hetero, homo, and bisexual differences in society. We would become gender fluid in Chulainous Firestone's own understanding. Uh, also notice uh, that when this is applied concretely to the law itself, there's a feminist movement that understands the way to destroy the old model of the family, the old gender roles, the old biological distinctions, is by destroying uh, the older conception of marriage legally and by introducing no-fault divorce, irreconcilable differences. Uh, one of the key authors of the Uniform Divorce Act that was adopted by the states, so California introduces an irreconcilable differences bill in 1969, but all states, 10 states do it by 1972, and all states but one by 1983. Um, one of the key authors of that was Herma Hill Kay. She herself was a feminist. And in 1972, she writes that in order to destroy the patriarchal family, we have to do away with the concept of fault altogether. In fact, she supports, quote, unilateral divorce. Let one member in the marital contract decide to unilaterally get out of the marriage, which is to say, destroy the contract altogether. Uh, here are some things that Herma Hill Kay, uh, she writes in 1972. She said that Dr. Spock... Uh, this is not Star Trek. This is the Freudian psychoanalyst that all of the parents were reading in 19, the late, late 50s and the early 60s, getting advice as to how to raise their kids. She said Dr. Spock wrongly inhibited, quote, women from entering the labor force, end quote, by saying, quote, mothers of young children are more valuable tending to children than when pursuing occupations outside the home. She said, quote, major governmental planning must, quote, devise ways of facilitating labor market entry and job continuity for these women. So in other words, we need to recast the social role of women as something distinctly economic. And we need to demote the older conception, the older understanding of women playing this primary role as being wives and mothers and playing a crucial role in the health and morals of their own children. Uh, and then she adds on to that, quote, scientific discovery may yet free women of the necessity of bearing children, end quote, and replacing child rearing with professional foster parents. There we get an echo of Shulamith Firestone. When technology is at its fullness, then women won't even have to bear children any longer. We will have presumably some kind of a technological pod that births these uh, babies. And you won't have to raise your own kids. There'll be professional, professional foster parents, full-time daycare centers, she says, we need in order to play that role as well. So what you have then is this full-throated attack on the old institution, and it's not coming, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this talk, it's not coming from the masses. Uh, when they actually poll Americans, you find that a majority in 1968 want to make it harder to get a divorce. This is rather coming from the intellectuals of society, the uh, intellectuals and the lawyers in the American Bar Association who are passing the uniform, uh, the New Uniform Divorce Act that's being adopted at the state level. And so you have elites in American society who have an interest in destroying the institution. And what was the effect of no-fault divorce or irreconcilable differences? And there are other terms for it depending on state law. 
uh, the effect was by the mid 70s, divorce is already at about 50%. Uh, and it's going to remain there until marriage as an institution begins to decline, where most adults today are simply not married. So marriage becomes an institution that uh, Forbes magazine or Business Insider will call a luxury. It's a luxury to get married, but there is no marriage for the majority of Americans. Uh, and so what that means is, is that the family, most of the things that go on inside the family are replaced by bureaucracy. This gives uh, reveals the lie of many of the libertarians who say, I just wish government would get out of family life, people's sexual affairs, and so on. That's not how it works. Once you destroy the family whose primary task is to raise and educate the children, somebody's got to raise those children. Who's it going to be? Child Protective Services. It's going to be a whole network in bureaucracy that replaces the role of the mother and the father in the home. Uh, and so bureaucracy goes on to replace family for many of those older families. Uh, and women enter the workforce in mass in the 1970s. I don't say this with any contempt. My mother was one of those women in the 70s. And what kind of jobs did they get? And here we find the beginning of the hollowing out of the middle class, right? Starts in 1973, the decline in real wages uh, that continues for decades uh, into the present. Uh, what you find from 1973 to 1980 is that service and retail trade uh, are more than 70% of the private sector job growth. 40% of those jobs were in food, health, and business services that grew at 16 times the rate of industry. Restaurants created more new jobs than existed in automotive and steel industries combined. And here's the key. In 1979, women were 89% of the workers in nursing and personal care facilities who made on average $3.87 per hour compared with $6.69 in manufacturing and $6.16 in the entire private economy. So women leave the home to go dominate part-time, low-paying, dead-end service jobs. 56% of the jobs in restaurants, 81% of the jobs in health. So while you have the Betty Friedans of the world talking about the glass ceiling, how do we smash through the glass ceiling? Most women end up entering the workforce to take these kinds of jobs, secretarial work, janitorial work, healthcare work, and so on. Uh, what happens to unskilled men in this period of time? From 1979 to 1989, hourly wages in the bottom fifth of the income distribution for unskilled men fell about 1% per year, and those in the second one-fifth fell by more than 1%. And so government then moves on to take over the role of the family, and it becomes preventative as well. Insofar as you do away with the family, you introduce the problems that the American Republican founders are warning of. If you look at the increased violence rate between males and females, now you need a preventative apparatus to step in. Uh, things like protective orders, uh, the crisis of date rape, uh, in other words, is extended to any kind of a conflict. Rape becomes an issue of power, uh, which means it doesn't actually have to be a, a real assault on college campuses. But we need a whole new educational regime that will teach a different view of the family, a different model of the family. And as course I've already mentioned, child protective services and child support uh, to help raise the children. So. What we have today is incredible social inequality. We have two different models of marriage. We have an elite model of marriage, and I don't want to say that there's no happiness there, or even uh, speak ill of it simply. I would say my marriage, in a way, is part of this. 
Delayed marriage after lengthy education, get married in your 30s and have, well, in most cases, 1.3 children, uh, not the case in my family, but then you destroy marriage for everybody else in the bottom half of society and growing. Uh, and what is the effect? Well, heightened illegitimacy or uh, increased illegitimacy. Uh, in 1965, uh, if you look at illegitimacy rates, 24% among blacks, 3.1% among whites. If you look at it today, 70% among blacks, 28% among whites, and 40% of all children today uh, are born illegitimately. Uh, if you look at the birth rate itself, there is an open discouragement of women to have more children. From 1960 to 2018, the average children per woman decreased from 3.5 to 1.73. In fact, we just heard from this from Chuck Schumer, right? It was yesterday, the day before, where we need to legalize uh, and naturalize 30 million illegals because American women don't have enough kids and this would be good for the economy. What happens to the children? There's a wonderful book by Erica Commissar called Being There. The basic point is, is that uh, women, who, women who have children should be there for the first three years of the child's growth. Why? Well, because uh, the oxytocin in the mother helps to regulate the cortisol levels in the child, the stress levels in the child that are necessary, low cortisol levels for a healthy development. It means that you can't replace the mother. It's impossible. And that she plays this crucial role in the physical and in the mental development of the child. If you look at the father, what happens with an illegitimacy rate of, in some cases, upwards of 70%. Now the father, who is the model for God, is absent uh, in the life of the child, particularly the young male. And the father cannot be replaced uh, in the life of the child. And the father is the ordering figure that teaches the child order in the universe as opposed to chaos, and who will look for substitutes and other kind of barbaric forms in delinquency, gangs, and so on. Uh, so what happens to men and women? Well, once you destroy the family, you've destroyed the key institution that women, in a way, help keep together, not just in a way, but are crucial for. If you have a family, the glue to that family are the females in the family. When it comes to my wife's family, the brothers, eh, they don't really talk or communicate that much. I have a brother I love very much, and I hate to say I speak to him several times a year, but the sisters, my wife's sisters, they call each other every day, every other day. They're the ones who keep track of the birthdays and all the important things. When you destroy the family and the kinship relations, what happens to women? They're not very happy. You see self-reported rates of happiness for women plummet from 1970 all the way to 2005, the last year I saw the data for it. What happens to men? Well, they lose a sense of vocation and purpose and providing for someone fulfills that, uh, that uh, a need that they have uh, as caregivers. Uh, and you find men dropping out of the society altogether. 40% uh, of those in college are males. Women dominate the universities today. In fact, they have to include a kind of affirmative action to bring men into liberal arts schools because they can't get them there. And sometimes they have this hideous game where they say, you want to play four more years of football, just take out loans for $100,000 and we'll make that happen. And now they have more men at the college. Uh, you have uh, men who are not educated to be men. They become more barbaric. Uh, I won't get into the decrease in testosterone levels and sperm counts and so on, but it's decreased 59% from 1973 to 2011. 
touch on men who don't have meaningful relationships, don't feel like they have a role in society, and we have the crisis of suicides and drug overdoses. An all-time high in 2021, 107,000. If you look at many of the lower-class men who are siphoned into the family court system, a place, by the way, where there is encouragement for women uh, to file a suit for divorce, women initiate an estimated 70-plus percent uh, of the divorces in the family court system where they have a distinct advantage in custody, and that's why they're the ones who initiate it. Women get custody something like 90 to 95 percent of the time. What happens to the men? Well, the men in the family court system are supposed to pay child support, uh, but the bulk of those that are ordered to pay child support are very low-income earning males. Seventy percent of the arrears of those uh, that are owed are those earning less than 10000 a year and must pay on average 83% of their paychecks. If you go to South Carolina, any of these states where there have been studies, a significant chunk, 12%, 20% of the inmates, are men who were there for not paying child support. And in a return to debt servitude, many of them, uh, men of color, African American, in a return to debt servitude, uh, they clock in the jailhouse, uh, and then so they don't have to give them dinner, they clock out, they work all week, they garnish their wages, and then they clock back into jail. That's the kind of situation uh, that we have uh, brought about. And then the last point that I'll make, what happens to the children in this scenario? Well, the children have no direction at all. You end up with all of the fads that we've seen as of late, the encouragement of them to try to receive some meaning in transcending their own biology. Transsexuals used to constitute 0.001% of the population. If you read Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage, 2% of high schoolers, and now instead of being majority male, majority female, who are the most susceptible to poor self-image and self-esteem in adolescence, 2% majority female were claiming to have gender dysphoria. In 2021, it was 9.7% of high schoolers claiming gender dysphoria or a severe discomfort with their biological sex. And so you have a situation where these young people are trying to transcend something biological, something necessary in the fulfillment of their own happiness. I think I'm going to leave it there uh, on that happy note uh, and open it up for questions. Uh, but I would say we have these two different models of the family, one for elites and then this very sad uh, example of what happens uh, for the lower half of society as well. Yes, sir. Dr. Slack, you've uh, remarkably translated what I thought was just a connect-the-dot picture into a Rembrandt of what we're facing and affirming and living our nature and God and faith and all that. I'm opening it up now to questions, but I thought it was absolutely remarkable, and it's a talk that I look forward to playing back again and again. Actually, this was this was absolutely a tour de force, and you did amazing. It was just amazing. Thank you. Um, I really have two questions. The first one if you, would be when you talked about the rise of no-fault divorce. I was a young law student when this was all coming out, and I worked in the court for a judge. And at that same time, um, contraception, the pill, was coming into very wide use. Can you just make some comments on the yeah. interplay between no for divorce and how that developed out of the contraceptive culture? I'm not sure that's accurate. There's a wonderful book by a guy, Alan Patinyi. Uh, who uh, passed on actually early in life. He's got a book called The Permissive Society, and he talks about uh, the 1950s view of sexuality. 
I'm not sure I agree with everything in the book, but one of the things he points out is the normal narrative is there's the pill, it's approved, the FDA in 1959, and then that opens up the sexual revolution, right? Because now, you know, you can have uh, sex and don't have to worry about children. What he points out is, is uh, women who are sexually active in at least one of the studies, only about 10% were, quote, on the pill. Uh, this is something, in other words, the pill follows the sexual revolution. That's the argument that he makes. It follows the, the view and culture. Uh, remember, even uh, when you look at the, uh, the first contraception case, right, Griswold v. Connecticut, 1964, uh, that's Planned Parenthood involved in that. The question was not, could single people buy uh, contraception? The obvious answer to that was no. <laughs> the argument was, could married people buy contraception? And the court said, well, there is this right to privacy in the emanations and penumbras of a whole host of the amendments in the Bill of Rights. But what's interesting is, is you have a change in the view of what sexual relations ought to be, arguably, and that the pill and the widespread use of the pill, I should say, actually follows that. Oh, you could also look at the, oh, uh, uh, the, uh, the reported rates of use of contraception among women in the mid-80s. And there was something uh, of a crisis among the, uh, the pill uh, providers and producers, manufacturers, uh, because of the introduction of generic birth control, and I believe it was 1985. <clears throat> and then they started to market the pill in a very different way. At that time, and I don't want to lie to you, but I have the numbers in front of me, I want to say it was something like 50 plus percent of women, 60 percent of women uh, said that they were on the pill. When they started to market uh, birth control aggressively into the 1990s, they were doing it so you could you could control acne, right? Uh, so it's control... Uh, you know, PMS and so on. Uh, and so this really uh, uh, um, accelerates uh, the use of the birth control pill. So I would push back a little, although I'm not an expert on it, as to which comes first, the pill or the sexual revolution. But I think the sexual revolution probably comes first. You are listening to a very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. We encourage you to check our movement out at massimpact.us. And during this season in particular, help us continue and expand this mission of more fully discovering, proclaiming, living, and building the kingdom. Click on that partner tab. God bless you. Thank you. This is really fascinating new information to me. But what I'm driving at is what was the interplay between um, a more expansive use of contraception in, that seemed to parallel the same time as no fault divorce. Yeah. Do you see those as connected or not connected? Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, the, the argument would be is that women need to be able to control their own bodies. In fact, in Sheila with Firestone, uh, who I cited, uh, she says one of the keys is that women can uh, control their own bodies through technologies such as the pill. Uh, and so this would liberate women so that they could uh, be full uh, members in the American economy and achieve uh, inequality. The people that attend organized religion in any way seems to be dropping like uh, amazingly. I know so many people, they don't, uh, they don't attend church. They, they, it's just disappearing. Could you have any thoughts on that? Why? Yeah, I, I think what you have is the formation of what we call a secular priesthood. Uh, uh, I understand, I mean, this is a theory of mine, I'm not saying it's even true, <laughs> but it seems, it's the best that I can do, right? Um, it seems to me that Christianity makes three deals with the devil, right? The first one is social gospel, that's in the early progressive era. That's where churches decided uh, that they uh, would advocate for a, a large state, uh, a large social welfare state. 
Um, this is not just, say, certain Protestant denominations. They're the ones who introduce it. But Catholics, such as Father John Ryan, are very much proponents of social gospel in this progressive era. Uh, why is that somewhat pernicious for the churches? Because the church has played an incredible role in American society. Quite literally, welfare. Welfare was undertaken at the local role and by the churches. The churches kept their own records of who was receiving welfare. Now, this might sound uh, somewhat nasty, but the truth is, is that allowed them to exercise control morally uh, in their own uh, localities. So for example, if you want your free bag of groceries, then we better see you here on Sunday, right, for mass. Right? So, so churches were power players uh, and they acted as such uh, in, in uh, American society. So that's one where the idea was, well, we're going to let the government take care of the body and we're going to take care of the soul. The second deal with the devil is where uh, intellectuals um, if, if, for example, if you, if you were undergoing some life crisis, who did you go to? Well, you went to your pastor or your priest. Uh, and in the 1920s, the 1930s, and that was called, there's a field, pastoral counseling. And in the 1920s, the 1930s, and on into the 40s, uh, you find pastors and priests wanting to be credentialed at universities. And who are, uh, and they're being credentialed in uh, counseling. And they're learning uh, all of the new, psycho, uh, the new psychotherapies. Carl Rogers, for example, his uh, client-centered therapy was the second most assigned book uh, at seminaries. Uh, and if you, if you read Carl Rogers, there's actually there's a good article about Carl Rogers by Wilson, Will, uh, William Coulson in, uh, in the journal Latin Mass. And he talks about uh, the influence of Carl Rogers in the seminaries. Um, it's all going to be... Um, uh, client-centered, which means you are not going to judge anyone. There's this open table without condemnation where you admit this other person in therapy uh, without uh, being harsh. And so you must be willing. It's called unconditional acceptance. You must be willing to accept them and whatever their positions are as a necessary stage in their therapy. So I would say that's number two. That's where uh, intellectuals in all the denominations whether it's Protestant uh, and then, of course, the church, uh, they are looking to secular authorities and they incorporate their methods thinking that they're neutral tools, merely scientific tools, when in reality, it's a complete inversion of the older authority. The third uh, deal, I think, is the, the existentialist philosophy that's incorporated in the 1960s. Uh, you have a whole uh, a stress on self-esteem. Robert Schuller, do you remember, isn't that the guy in the, the cathedral, the, the, the glass, crystal cathedral, that's right. Um, so you have the, the new self-esteem therapy, uh, and you have uh, different Catholics incorporating an existential philosophy. And I think in part they did this because they thought, uh, this is a critique of the early liberal or the early Early, the earlier secularism. One of the problems of the existentialist philosophy is that it's a kind of vague Christianity using vague terms that are easily replaceable. Uh, so Paul Tillich was one of the leading existentialist uh, theologians. Uh, and it's no mistake that uh, you find, oh, uh, uh, liberation theologians like James Cone in 1970 who are citing Paul Tillich. And now Christianity becomes something that's infinitely malleable and historically contingent. For example, you have the argument that, well, sin is whiteness, according to James Cone. Uh, it's a whole system of oppression that must be overthrown. Uh, so salvation is then liberating ourselves from, uh, from uh, white supremacy. So you find this kind of vague Christianity with substitutable terms that uh, can take off in any other direction. Uh, and you also have the new, the new pagan religions of the 60s. So I would say one of the dilemmas is 
many leaders in the church didn't believe it anymore. And I noticed uh, uh, if, if you read about uh, Catholics in, oh, in the late 60s, this was one of the conundrums that they had was that they didn't recognize the church anymore. And it's not to say that everything that happened at Vatican II was simply evil, but it is to say uh, that there was a loss of faith among, uh, among the priesthood uh, and that, uh, you, see that um, uh, you see that echoed uh, in the laity. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's, uh, I would you. say those kind of three movements that as best as I can tell, played a real role in the decline of, of Christianity. And of course, I should say this. I mentioned James for this reason. The priests today are who? The identity politics crowd. So uh, it's no mistake. If you actually look at uh, Americans who proclaim to be atheist or agnostic, it doesn't rise much from 1960, 70 to 1990. It moves from something like, and again, I don't want to lie to you, something like 5% to 6.7%. What you see throughout the 1990s is, is a dramatic increase in the number of Americans with four-year degrees in college. They're the new cosmopolitans. And they are going to, and so an increase in those proclaiming to be atheist and agnostic, and they now have a new substitute religion, social justice. Uh, and the more, then the percentage of Americans, uh, the higher it goes, they've graduated from college. So, for example, among uh, the, the young generation, something like 40% claims to be atheist or agnostic. And why? Because they have a substitute religion. Uh, when you confess your white privilege, for example, that takes on all the trappings of a confessional booth. And, uh, and you have to do penance. Right? It's not enough just to admit you have a problem, uh, you know, white supremacy, racism, and so on. Now you need to do all kinds of things. Uh, you need to be an ally against uh, 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 white supremacy. You need to be anti-racist, and so on. So you have a new kind of priesthood, and I think that explains uh, how zealous these advocates are. Transgenderism is another good example. And the really tragic, the awful stories of young people who think, and they're taught this, and of course, uh, now you don't even have to have your parents' consent in California. The school will work with you to change your gender pronouns and even admit you or help you get a course of testosterone. And when you hear uh, the, uh, the statements from these young people, they believe that if they just get the next surgery, then they'll be complete, right? So there's some kind of fulfillment that they can achieve. And of course, they destroy their own bodies in the process. And what's left is very tragic, and that's why you have the high attempted suicide rates among transgenders, something like 20 to 40%. Do you think the decline of the family oh. unit could play Oh, do you think the decline of the family unit, though, not all the households with single parents, and that, do you think that has a, an impact on the organized religion also, or atheism, or agnostic? In other words, so many households have a single parent now, instead of a mother-father traditional. Does that, you think that influences the? Yeah, I do. Uh, and and one, of the, uh, one of the facts that stands out to me is, is that a married, a married couple is more likely to go to church. Uh, and uh, we see this, uh, how many of you read that Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart? Right, and pretty important. But 2012, what he looks at is whites in America. He doesn't want race to be some kind of a, a confusing variable. And so he just looks at whites and he says, there's the myth that, uneducated whites in America, they're the ones who are very religious. 
What was his name? Was it Thomas Frank? What was the guy? What's wrong with Kansas? You've got all these evangelicals and they're poor uh, and they should be looking to the Democratic Party for their free government cheese. Instead, they are getting a lot of evangelical religion. That's the problem with Kansas, right? Um, what Charles Murray says is those people are not religious. Right when you have broken families, as the lower classes of America do, uh, rather they're not religious at all. Right, you can't have a gangster with a Santa Muerta tattoo who says, "Oh, I'm a good Christian." Rather, they don't know anything about dogma. Very low rates of church attendance, uh, and so it's upper class Americans who are much more likely to go to church and much more likely to be married. Upper middle class today, even you're talking about 84 percent among whites, 84 percent marriage rate, because they know that it's important to have two, two parents in the home, and they also know that there's some organizing force uh, in religion for their own children. How would you kind of approach that uh, of those the stickiest of situations of a woman like Amy Comey Barrett with young children at home called to this very important responsibility of Supreme Court justice, keeping in mind what traditional marriage is and what the primacy, like the primacy of the woman being home especially in those first three years like you talked about. Sure. That, I would say, first one. of all, when you have, uh, one of the problems with having such educated women is, is there's not an available pool of men. Women always want to marry up. Uh, they always want a man who's better than them, whereas men are much more likely to settle. Uh, and so uh, with women who dominate in bureaucracy and in education, and I mean dominate, you know, if you look at certain fields, you're talking about 70, 80% of the degrees. Women dominate men, as I recall, in master's degrees and so on. Um, so uh, that's, uh, that's one of the problems with women moving into some of these fields. Men tend to, tend to drop out or are concerns simply about women. Uh, I went to University of California, Davis, and I got the, uh, the alumni magazine, and they were talking about how women are basically dominating men in all these different uh, graduate fields. And uh, like the vet school, as I recall, was 70 or 80% female. Um, and then what they did was they went to, oh, it was engineering or something. They said, but there's more work to be done there because we don't have more women than men. So that's what we focus on. When you get to uh, uh, women who are working, and I just all cards, my mother worked uh, and she didn't go to college so very late in life. She got an associate's degree uh, when she was uh, in her early 60s. Um, and so she worked a lot of uh, really awful jobs. Uh, her first job was cleaning bedpans. She was one of these women in the 70s who moved into the health uh, sector. Uh, she worked as a janitor, uh, worked at McDonald's. Uh, that's not really cool when you're in junior high, your mom works at McDonald's. Um, sorry, mom, if you ever hear this. Uh, it, but the point is, is like that's so women working was just the norm that I grew up with. When you get to, and so that's one question, or that's one response. When we're dealing with the family, and most women, is it the case that they would choose to work the jobs that they do? I don't think my mom would ever say, being a secretary helped me fulfill myself. I think she would say, it put a, it put a check, right, uh, on the table and helped pay for some of the things in the family. When you look at upper class women, what you find is the higher the income, the fewer actually work full time. And so I think there's kind of a myth that we have in America today. And the myth is this, is that I am a mother and I have a career. Okay, so I am, I'm a good mother. Women want to be good mothers. I don't think that's something strange. Uh, but then they get the honor for having a career. When you look at most of the women who are upper middle class, they're not working 40 hours a week when they're moms. They want to stay home. They want to be around the children. So they're working part time. I don't condemn that at all. 
right? And if you actually, as I mentioned before, uh, women have always worked outside the home to help bring in some extra money. Uh, what I'm questioning is, are the myths that if you decide to stay home, you're somehow not fully human, uh, and that's a way of heaping honor on women who do go to school, they have graduate degrees, who know that they want to be good mothers and are not working full time. Uh, I think it's uh, something like 28% of women who are mothers would want to work full time, right, outside the home. Uh, so most women don't want to do it, and yet you have a large number who must do it. Uh, and that's part of, I think, that economic divide that we have today. So I think women do fulfill these roles. Uh, and uh, can do a wonderful job at it. Or they tend to gravitate to, to the roles that they're interested in. And I think there's a biological difference there. Uh, this is a conservative talking point by now. Uh, somebody like Jordan Peterson talks about how in Scandinavian countries, when you give women equal opportunity to leave the home uh, and to work, they tend to gravitate to uh, certain kinds of jobs, you know, sometimes we call them pink collar jobs, and men tend to gravitate to other kinds of jobs, right? Usually dealing with things instead of dealing with people. Um, so it's not that I think there's no place for women working, it's that I question the myths that we often have, uh, that women who are upper middle class or, or wealthy, uh, they tend to balance being being mothers with having a job and uh, doing things uh, that they very much enjoy and receiving honor for it. But the price that has to be paid for that achievement is what I really want to focus on. And that is, most women have to work. They're not going to get married, and it's going to be kind of a life of drudgery. There is something, uh, there's something odd about the myth, and this is what I'm, I'm pointing my finger at, the myth that women are liberated because they have jobs, whereas if they stay home, then they're slaves. And you think, so you can go be a wage slave at some low-paying job, and you're free. That sounds like back on the plantation. Look how free you are. You get to work all day. Uh, and so trying to explode that myth, I think, is important. You are listening to a very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. We encourage you to check our movement out at massimpact.us. And during this season in particular, help us continue and expand this mission of more fully discovering, proclaiming, living, and building the kingdom. Click on that partner tab. God bless you. So the phone rings tomorrow, and you hear on the other line, Hey, Kev, this is Amy. I want some advice here. I'm having a bout of conscience. You know, I just helped rule in this Dobbs case, and I can make a huge difference. But I got these kids at home. I'm looking for your advice. What does Dr. Kevin say to her? Oh, I mean, for, I'm not going to give advice. To I know, I know. That's fine. I, I'm going to shift it. But I, I mean, I get. I think. I think the framework you offered is very, very helpful for us to understand that we even good Catholics um, endeavoring to live fully our faith that there are roles of men and women by God's design and they're ordered towards fulfillment. They're ordered towards a goodness and the enemy enters into these circumstances and profoundly messes with identity, profoundly messes with the nature of what is fulfillment and estranges us from it. And I love how you described that we really create these parallel religions, these artificial religions. Um, we're going to worship one way or another. And I like that you introduced that we are worshiping people. It's just either going to be right worship or false worship. I want to ask the question, um, Matt Walsh produced a mic drop movie with a mic drop documentary title. What is a woman? Um, and really is he, interviews these leaders throughout the country who who hold these positions, um, they have no answer and they kind of avoid it. So I want to ask you, not only with the great wisdom you brought us tonight, but on a campus that uh, prizes virtue and wants to form the full human person, what would you say are the defining 
attributes of masculinity by God's design and femininity that are most under attack? Most under attack. Well, uh, when I look at, say, uh, the images, right, first of all, uh, obviously this is not at Hillsdale, but on college campuses, the idea that you can define a woman is challenged so that there's no biological uh, female, which is, of course, absurd. Um, so what's under attack then is the notion that, so if you were to ask what is a woman, the answer that's almost always given is, well, it's a spectrum and multiple continuum. So you end up with, well, we believe in biology, but there's male biology, female biology, and instead of a binary, because binary is evil, we end up with all these gradations, and they're going to pick out, you know, the two exceptions in, you know, a thousand cases. Um, and so they'd say, well, uh, what's a woman? You can't say it's either or because I'm going to focus on the exception. And then we also have uh, what you identify as, who you are attracted to, and so on. Uh, so what's attacked is the very concept uh, of female biology on many campuses, but also, I think, the roles uh, that women play. Uh, and that's part of that inversion of the older understanding. Uh, where, insofar as you are a wife and mother, that's something to be demoted, something to be ashamed of, uh, and that you need to, um, if you are a girl, you need to be powerful. Uh, and this is the lesson that all of our girls, I have two daughters, so this is a lesson that they all get through Pixar films and Disney and so on. Uh, I think that what we do is we set up images that, uh, that consist of very unrealizable expectations for women and lead to heartbreak down the road. I am going to have a career, a full-time career. I'm going to change the world, but I'm also going to be a mom. What does that lead to? Well, for many women, you read the Wall Street Journal, you find out in their early 30s, they have, because of these unrealizable expectations, they don't have a family, they don't have any kids. Uh, and then if you look at mating strategies used by males and females, it's actually hard for them to find a decent guy in their early 30s, particularly someone uh, that is above them in terms of qualifications that they're looking for. So now they're going to freeze their eggs. And so you have a tragedy after tragedy of these women who are very accomplished uh, in their late 30s uh, who can't have children. Right? And this is something that biologically, uh, you talk to any woman who's around 30, that clock is ticking, they're very interested in. So I think that we educate women to assault and destroy the images instead of a realistic conversation with many young women about, look, these are the choices that you have and understand that motherhood is going to be one of these important choices. Uh, don't neglect that. Uh, for all of the praise of going off and, and being powerful. I don't just say that image as well. Uh, when you, it's hard for men to understand the differences between males and females physically. Uh, and um, it, men forget that because we're, we're so used to the movies that we're indoctrinated with. I remember a story, this, uh, a woman, Katie Petronio, was a lieutenant, as I recall, uh, in engineering in the Marine Corps. Hope I'm getting that right. She writes an article called, Sorry, We're Not All Equal. She basically says the idea of putting women in combat positions is a big mistake. She had been in a combat position, I think, uh, as working with, and again, I think it was engineering. Um, but because of the hardships on her body, she had become sterile. And she thought of herself as being a really powerful woman. She had broken the bench press record at Bowdoin College. Uh, and when I read the number, I couldn't believe it. The bench press record, as I recall, was something like 135 pounds. Now, it's not to mock it. It is to say, as a male, and you have to, if you're a female, put yourself in, into my place, 135 pounds is something that any guy with a month or two of working out is going to reach. 
and so you forget the tremendous distinctions between males and females, but we encourage that, right, with the movies we watch where women are, you know, 100-pound women are beating up men. Uh, what do we do uh, with men? Uh, well, we often discourage them from being manly. And so you end up with, without any father figure, right, this ordering role in the life of a male. And if you have boys, you know what I'm talking about, right? Where uh, my wife, I cannot replace her. If children are hurt, they need mom. They don't need me. It's a bit discouraging uh, from my position. But um, when it comes to disobeying mom, it is amazing the difference between dad getting mad and mom getting mad. Uh, there was one the comic, Chris Rock, who had a, a routine about this, where, uh, <laughs> where the mother tells she's going to kill her kid. He says, so what? <laughs> and, and she says, and he says I'm going to get your daddy. He goes, okay, okay, okay. So there's something about this ordering force for men. Now, if you don't have a father in the home, you end up with, as one a pretty famous article uh, uh, talks about, you end up with this divide between wimps and barbarians. You end up with men who are very emotional, uh, and never having done anything with their lives, even if they're interested in females, they're going to put together a compilation of their favorite songs and reveal themselves to some young woman. Um, or they're highly aggressive and barbaric, and they, uh, they don't know that you don't hit a girl. There's no distinctions in their mind. They're openly crass around women. And what that's meant is, is that men and women really don't know how to relate to one another anymore. They don't even really like each other. Uh, and you end up situation uh, where men treat women very vulgarly. Uh, what's interesting about the current generation is they have the lowest reported rates of actual sex of any, I think, that's been studied. And why is that? Well, because you have a generation of men and women, boys and girls, who are raised on pornography. Uh, and when young girls see this, they don't think it's sexy. They think it's awful. Uh, and this is in Abigail Schreier's book. And so they decide, you know what, I'm just asexual because I'm not interested in that. It also gives men crazy expectations as to what they think sex actually is. Uh, how does this unfold in our regime? Well, you end up with a de facto polygamy. You go to any university and you have a, a large number of women sleeping with the same few men, and then you end up with a bulk of men who are now watching pornography, right? Uh, and so uh, not learning how to be men, not aggressive, not challenged. Uh, and so it ends up affecting uh, affecting the kids. So destroying those images, I think, is a real effect on education. Absolutely fabulous. Jeff nailed it. It's a tour de force. Before we land this, though, I want to ask you for signs of hope. You guys are about forming for the kingdom, for the full, our nature in Christ and living it fully. Give us some signs of hope. I, the uh, I am very optimistic. But then again, I'm at Hillsdale. <laughs> So I don't know how representative that can be. Um, I am surrounded by wonderful young people, incredibly intelligent. Uh, I mean, I can't even explain how intelligent they are, how savvy they are, but they're very decent. This is males and females, just very decent young people. They have the right principles. They're devout Christians. They debate, as I was talking, they debate theology in the cafeteria when they're freshmen. Oh, so to the point where they get tired of it by the time they're a sophomore. Um, and all the evangelicals convert to Catholicism. So you, you have a situation where I'm hopeful because I see very intelligent women who want to be educated for its own sake, and then maybe at some point in their life go on to teach. Uh, or to do something. My wife has a PhD. I don't know if she's ever going to teach, but if you asked her and you said, well, did you waste your time doing that? I don't think she would say yes. No, 
Education is something good for its own sake. Uh, so you have women who are going to be accomplished in the workforce, but also have a view as to the importance of motherhood and having a strong family. And then you have young men who are able to, and I think this is one of the keys, who they're not just intellectual, they're also manly. And so there's a big push at Hillsdale. I mean, in some cases, it's somewhat somewhat funny. So where I guess they're putting weightlifting equipment in all the dorms or something like that. <laughs> um, you have men who, they're well-rounded. They're not just intellectual, uh, but they're manly. And they wrestle, and they box, and they do all these kinds of things. Uh, so I look at the community I'm in, uh, and I see... Uh, Lots of reason for hope. I see it in my own family, my own kids, right? You know, God willing, I do a good job as a parent. Uh, and then you take that and you extrapolate that. Uh, you extend it to other parts of society. One of the encouraging things that I see is, is that uh, in my view, all, all morality is aggression. And what you find among this generation is, is they're the first to be exposed to all of the degradation that I think many of us who are older accepted. Give you an example. In the 1990s, if you were to bring up questions of sexuality, pornography, and so on, no conservative intellectual would take that seriously. I remember that. And you would bring it up and they would laugh because everybody knows that only sticks in the mud aren't libertarians and so on. Well, now you have a generation that grew up with it and they're disgusted by it. You know, uh, And so I see that. And I think there's something actually healthier about their views than the views I remember uh, in, in the late 90s and in the early 2000s. Uh, so I think there's a lot of reason for optimism of a new right that genuinely speaks its mind on these issues uh, and is expressing them, I think, forcefully out in the public sphere. You are listening to a very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. We encourage you to check our movement out at massimpact.us. And during this season in particular... Help us continue and expand this mission of more fully discovering, proclaiming, living, and building the kingdom. Click on that partner tab. God bless you.